0: You're listening to a podcast produced by the Jackson School of International Studies, the Center for West European Studies, and the European Union Center at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit
1: us at jsis.washington.edu slash EU West Europe. Welcome to our second book talk this quarter, um, showcasing the really excellent work of colleagues in European Studies at the University of Washington. My name is Sabine Lang. I'm a professor of European and International Studies at the Henry M. Jackson School of International Studies. I also direct the Center for West European Studies, which is a European Union-funded, Erasmus-funded, Jean Monnet Center, and I hold the EU Chair here at UW. Um, I'd like to start really by acknowledging that for most of us right now, it seems really difficult to focus these days on what we're really passionate about as we see um, the tremendous horror unfolding in Europe. And we're all therefore really much more delighted, I believe, that uh, we, can communicate about something that many of us are passionate about today with you in this hour on Zoom. Um, I also would like to acknowledge that this event as all of our events uh, has been organized by the Center for West European Studies and the Jean Center and could not be possible without a lot of background work that uh, we hardly ever see. Thanks to our managing director Phil Lyon and, in particular also to our program and outreach coordinator Susanna Haley for doing this work behind the scenes. Now let me introduce today's speaker, uh, Dr. Tasso Lagos to you, even though I also suspect that to some or many of you, he might not need introductions because Tasso has been such a presence and force on the dub campus and beyond over the past decades. Thassolagos was born and raised in a small village on a, in rural Greece, and he immigrated to the United States when he was nine years old. He received his PhD in communications from UW in 2004 and has been a lecturer here for now over 20 years. He also, with his partner, co-led and still co-leads many successful study abroad programs to Greece. I just learned that the next one is actually coming up this coming week. His teaching and research is all about what makes us and our students global citizens. And he does cover subjects such as global impact of smart technologies and diaspora communities in Seattle and beyond. When Tassel leads study abroad programs, I've heard this from many students, uh, they come back with not just love for Greece, but they come uh, come back with uh, schooling in ethnographic research, for example, on diaspora communities on the Greek islands. In fact, how to turn what some perceive as academic tourism into social justice work is part of Tazo Lagos's big projects and he has published widely on these issues. Besides the book he'll take us to in a minute he has also written a monograph on a forgotten movie theater pioneer in Hollywood Alexander Pantages and he's currently working on a survey of Greek restaurants in the United States from 1880 to the present, as well as on a nation branding history of the US. And I hope we can address some of these issues in the Q and A then. But now let's turn to what he will address today, which is from my village to to the global village, finding America in a Greek restaurant, a talk that is based on a book that you've just seen on our entry slide a book that has been published recently called Cooking Greek, Becoming American, 40 Years at Seattle's Continental Restaurants, which many of us know. So thank you Toso for being here and I will hand this over to you now.
0: Thank you Sabina and welcome to everyone. Thank you uh, again for inviting me and also thank you to Susanna and Phil for organizing this event. <clears throat> what I would like to do is just briefly talk about uh, a few issues. I will talk about why I wrote the book. Um, I will also talk about the journey of becoming uh, an American, which is why the title of this talk is uh, From My Village, The Global Village. And then I'll talk about the institutional factors involved in becoming an American. And then I will end by talking about food studies and and how my book is situated within that specific discipline. So um, why I wrote the book, I, I'm going to start off with a story that uh, is perhaps a little bit uh, challenging, but I think it's an important story because it set me off on this journey, uh, which ended up with the book. Um, so I we my family and I, uh, my wife, partner and our daughter, live in uh, unincorporated Snohomish, which is right next to the Mill Creek area. Uh, which is not far from Linwood, So we live in a fairly, it's a middle class neighborhood, the typical middle class neighborhood. We've been here for now almost 10 years. And about three or four years after we moved in, um, I was walking along a major street, 35th 35th Avenue, if you're familiar with the neighborhood here at uh, at all. Uh, And it was a summer uh, afternoon, I went out for a walk and as I was standing on the corner of 35th and Seattle Hill Road uh, waiting for the light to change, all of a sudden I saw an apple that rushed in front of my head and then I heard the word nigger shouted at me and I turned around and there was this big black pickup truck, you probably have seen them now, I see them around the area with big American flags behind and rushed off in a hurry and it left me absolutely stunned uh, that this event had taken place on a just a very warm sunny uh, summer day and when I came back home I was literally shaking from that event and I told uh, my wife partner and we had a discussion about that and in that moment it sort of crystallized what has been happening, I think, for the last, perhaps, decade in the United States an increasing polarization about the debate around immigrants and immigration. Um, I didn't at that point necessarily have an idea to write a book, but I wanted to perhaps do something, uh, and that later coalesced around the book. So that was kind of the beginning element of it. Um, The second part, of course, was the closing of my family's restaurant Uh, My father and my parents, my family owned a restaurant for nearly 40 years. uh, And that had an impact on my thinking about the meaning of that particular place. Um, And also just reading, beginning to dip into reading about uh, stories surrounding restaurants, particularly ethnic restaurants in the United States, and feeling like uh, they're a voiceless community. Uh, you don't necessarily get a lot of work, uh, certainly on the academic level, about ethnic restaurants. And I wanted to sort of dip into that, and I'll talk about that later. So um, so that's the, the essence, the beginning uh, of this journey. Uh, the second part is perhaps the more complex part, is the notion of how one, excuse me, becomes an American. And I say complex because uh, Prior to this, I always had assumed, prior to writing the book, I always had assumed that it was a fairly straightforward process, Um, but after I wrote the book and began to think more seriously about immigration, not that I haven't really thought about it, but in a more fundamental way, I began to realize that it's not an easy process, uh, and how it happens uh, perhaps is not even conscious in a a particular way. Writing the book gave me a chance to really reflect on the issue and to really understand that particular process a little bit more. And uh, for me, watching the events in Eastern Europe unfold in the last couple of weeks um, and seeing all the refugees coming out of Ukraine, I think 1.5 million or so, I don't know what the last count is, and really feeling for them, not only in terms of victims of this terrible war, but also in terms of the journey that they will have to undergo uh, as immigrants or transplanted individuals living in a new country. Um, And that is a process that they have to deal with and negotiate with and and reckon with, and all these things that I had to go through. And I wish I could just tell them to try to be patient with yourself and try to forgive yourself and and don't try to do too many things at the same time. so there is a process of that, um, and I learned about it uh, firsthand. But again, I hadn't really thought about it. it. It's not something that you as an immigrant, meaning if you are an immigrant, that you consciously necessarily think about. It's You, you face particular struggles, and you try to deal with them the best way you can. If, uh, if there is not too much of a contrast between your homeland, the place that you were born and you were raised, and the host land, the new land that you will go into, then the adoption and adaptation process is a little bit easier in some regard. For me, it was more difficult because we came from a very rural Greek village, as Professor Lang just uh, mentioned. Uh, I didn't. I have no I had no concept, conceptualization of the United States except for the stories that I heard from villagers who had either been there for a vacation or had uh, grandparents or parents who had been there for work and the myth that kept coming up uh, before we left uh, Greece to move to the United States was America is the land of gold. There's literally gold on the sidewalks and of course that was the uh, first disappointment in my life that there was no gold in the sidewalks. I searched for it the first day we arrived Um, So there was no preparation for us, Uh, we lived in a very small community, uh, mostly farmers, my father was a coal miner as well, Uh, I grew up, even as a young child, remembered very well, uh, in the summers going up to the fields, we lived in a mountain village, and the fields were located above the village on a relatively flat plateau, Um, to cut the wheat, we raised our own wheat, we raised our own olives which should turn into olive oil there wasn't actually a uh olive factory in the village and i remember it distinctly because i don't know if you've ever been to an olive oil factory it's a terrible smell by the way awful smell and i remember the season which was usually around september or so or october uh when the olive oil was produced and it was just a terrible smell that everybody in the village smelled um so uh, we raised our own vegetables we uh, we had no indoor, uh, uh, we had no indoor heating, no indoor plumbing, um, just a very rustic village that we would consider in the United States, probably something from the 19th century. So we were very unprepared for the transition um, to the United States. Uh, we, uh, we left Athens, we flew to Brussels, and then from Brussels, on Sabina Airlines, actually we flew to New York City. Um, where I saw my first African-American, which was absolutely shocking for me. Uh, And then we flew to Seattle. And I remember the uh, flight. I happened to be sitting on the window as the plane was descending upon SeaTac Airport um, and just seeing this vast carpet of lights, like somehow in America, uh, darkness had been banished. Uh, and I, I say that because in Greece, uh, in our village, there was the village and there was darkness and then in a in a far distance there was another little circle of lights for the next village. So the idea that you would have this carpet of lights was completely foreign to me. Um, so we came into a new culture, a new society, a new language. I only knew the word no in English which would get me into trouble when I went to school. Uh, the food, the climate, everything that you could imagine was completely different to what I had known in the village in Greece. Um, my first day in school was on a Monday. We had arrived uh, to the United States to Linwood, actually, to stay with my uncle in his apartment right off of Aurora. Uh, they're called Viking apartments um, on a Saturday. And then by Monday morning, I was in school. And in Greece, we always wore shorts to school because that's what you did, even during the winter. Uh, At the time that I arrived in the United States, shorts were not, they were verboten. Uh, And uh, the teacher looked at me and my pants and pointed to my house and told something to Uncle John who accompanied me to school. And uh, Uncle John said, you have to go back and put longer pants. Um, So that was something that remained with me. So the transition was quite difficult. I was very unhappy for two years. I remember telling my mother at one point that I would walk back to Greece. Um, So very difficult times. Uh, The transition was quite, quite difficult. And eventually, of course, um, I had to learn. Um, I had a very bittersweet relationship with the United States. I always regarded for many, many years the United States as as a kind of an enemy because it took me took me away from my beloved village which i had known and was accustomed to i knew the 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 mores i knew the seasons i knew the the way that life operated i had my best friends and everything that was all gone um so i had very much of a mixed feeling towards the united states and it took a very very long time to begin to appreciate what this culture can give us uh, not that to say that there aren't problems here, but I began to appreciate that um, that th- the country does offer opportunities that I would never have had in Greece, and so forth and so on. So that process, that complexity, is something that um, I talk a little bit about in the book. There's so much more to say though, because I, I I don't I I tried not to talk too much about myself, although I ended up doing so. This was more of a biography of the restaurant. I wanted to look at the restaurant as if it was a living human being which in in a certain sense it was Um, the third so uh, and we can talk more about the notion of becoming american and particularly i think uh, in the last few years how that debate has become much more polarized uh, than it ever has before in the time we've been here in the united states the the third part is this notion of institutional factors and this is was the surprising thing uh the book uh just to go back and then i want to touch upon uh the institutional factors involved the the book was an accidental book in the sense that um I, i never thought it would be published and for the reason being is that i saw that as a very i saw the manuscript as as a very personal uh element um I, was, I happened to have just finished writing the manuscript for, as Professor Lang said, about the um, life of a Greek-American theater pioneer in the early 1900s, uh, Alexander Pantages, um, a forgotten figure. And after writing that manuscript, you might say that the creative juices were flowing. So I sat down, and over the course of two weeks, I wrote the, the manuscript. And my intention was just to put it aside and forget about it. Um, I had a contract with uh, the publisher to do a book, uh, a wide book about Greek restaurants in the United States, which I'm still under contract to do, uh, and then COVID hit, so it was not possible to do any research for this big survey a book of Greek restaurants in the United States, um, so I decided to uh, write to the publishing company and said, well, I can't do any research, I can't go to Detroit to visit Greek town and learn more about what was happening there and collect some archives go to the local library. There's also a museum there Uh, because of COVID. It was at that point, it was difficult to fly anywhere. So um, I asked them if they would be okay with me writing a memoir of the family restaurant, which was supposed to be part of the larger survey book. Uh, And they agreed to that. And uh, then I thought, well, let me go back and and look at my manuscript and maybe use that as a template and, and then write something something new. So I read the book and I realized that, well, it has some merits. So maybe I can build upon that. So I did some more work on it uh, and I sent it to the publisher and they really liked it, uh, which was very interesting. Um, and they decided to publish it. And uh, it was quite uh, a journey in that regard because, um uh, Like I said, I never expected that to happen. But in writing the book, not only did I have to confront uh, old ghosts about what it means to become American, what it means to be an immigrant in this culture, uh, I also began to understand something about the restaurant and what it did for us and how it helped us to become Americans. Uh, In the book, I referred to that process where... The restaurant, in a sense, was a school for us, teaching us how we can join the American mainstream culture. Um, when I, when you deal with perhaps 150, 200 customers every single day of the operation, you begin to understand something about the culture because you are, in a sense, forced to negotiate it with it. You, you can't stay in your house. Uh, all the time, but now you're you're facing the public every single day. Uh, and this was the, the shock to me, to understand that it wasn't simply a process of my family and me, me and my family, uh, becoming Americans on our own, perhaps by osmosis, perhaps by encountering the culture as I did in school and so forth, but it was the restaurant as an institutional factor that made that uh, process of adoption and, and adaptation, I don't like to use the word assimilation or integration, they've taken on very loaded uh, connotations, but it was being able to adapt and adopt to the, to the new culture, to the mainstream culture. And this institution, this cafe, this restaurant, this school was the one that ultimately I think made it possible And one of the uh, elements that I can draw, one of the lessons that I can draw from the book is that um, we need such institutions and they are really fundamental in helping uh, immigrants to, to join the mainstream culture and not just restaurants, but really any business where you're interacting with the public. Uh, we were lucky that we came into the restaurant. Uh, my my father bought it in 1974 at a time when uh, it was easy to uh, operate a business. Rents in the university district were very reasonable. Um, it didn't require a lot of money. Uh, my father got a bank loan of $25,000 at that time, which is about $250,000 now, which might seem like a lot of money, but he got the loan. Uh, And, of course, he paid it back in relatively short order. Uh, And there was this flavor in the U district where it wasn't just the Continental, but many other restaurants that were there serving ethnic food. And this variety was very interesting, different shops. There was Carter's Delicatessen. Um, There was a lot of different kinds of operations that lended the area uh, a very vibrant, certainly a very sort of vibrant ethnic feel to it. And uh, one of the things that I've noticed uh, is this change over now to a much more gentrified community where, although there are ethnic restaurants still there, you begin to seek a transition to a much more of a corporate, corporate kind of feel to the place where because the rents are now increasing, um, the financial obligations become uh, greater. So uh, what made our restaurant possible and other restaurants possible where the cheap rents and the relative ease in being able to partake and join a business there, now is becoming harder. And one of the questions that I raise in the book and I raise now here is what impact will that have in future generations when we have folks joining us from other parts of the world? How are they going to be able to adapt and adopt to the society? Um, So I just, I raised that question Uh, broadly speaking uh the last part is trying to situate my book within the the general uh food studies um discipline it's a growing movement uh in that regard i'm also kind of an accidental part of this uh discipline um i was offered to teach a class on food studies of all things uh, a few years ago uh, at the university of washington and uh, that's when i started really thinking about ethnic restaurants in a in a particular way, uh, we had an assignment where I asked students to go up the Ave and interview folks uh, to go into ethnic restaurants and, and and talk to the owners or the managers and try to understand their situation, what they've gone through, how they got into the business, etc. Um, and it, it was uh, an opening salvo in understanding the, 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 the larger picture of food studies. Um, I mentioned earlier about uh, this one author her name is uh, Jennifer 8 Lee. Uh, 8 is her middle initial, by the way, the number 8, who wrote a book called The Fortune Cookie Chronicles about Chinese American restaurants, uh, which was uh, extraordinary to me because it really allowed me to see that uh, there's a lot of ethnic restaurants. There's a tremendous contribution of ethnic food to our society here in the United States. But a lot of times biographies or work around restaurants, ethnic restaurants, hasn't been very common until really very recently. Um, Certainly around Greek restaurants, uh, there hasn't been a lot, although I'm starting to see more work uh, around that. Um, So it it was really wonderful to see other writers who began to open up uh, this venue of speaking about uh, ethnic restaurants, their experiences, the contributions they made. And and so uh, I wanted this book to sort of fit within that uh, to give voice to to the voiceless, as I mentioned before, but to really uh, make the case that uh, restaurants, uh, Greek, Italian, uh, Mexican, Caribbean, uh, Chinese, all the very Italian, French, all of these, uh, Spanish, all of these have really contributed to an extraordinary um, milieu in the United States of having such a variety of restaurants, and certainly around big cities, Seattle, Los Angeles, San Francisco, you you, you see a vibrant ethnic uh, restaurant community. So it's really uh, nice to be able to see that. So uh, writing this book also was a way for me to, uh, as I dis- uh, mentioned a little bit earlier, about uh, seeing and contributing to the knowledge that ethnic restaurateurs have contributed to our society. Uh, Immigrants have made a tremendous contribution to society. And I just wanted to uh, folks to be reminded of that, particularly during these very, very fraught times when again, we have such a extraordinary polarized discussion uh, around immigration. So um, thank you for listening.
1: Thank you very much, Tasso. This is really a very timely and and Seattle focused and yet very global um, set of of issues you raise and questions you pose. Um, This idea that we have a restaurant as a living thing that is a school for you, for others who come to visit it, that is an institution and Continental definitely was an institution. I can testify to that when I arrived in Seattle in 2021, this was the place to go on the earth and a lot of business dealings and student meetings and faculty discussions happened in the Continental. So this idea that this place, um, while being a Greek restaurant has a much broader footprint in the community, but also is a school in cultural adaptation or learning or however you phrase this. It's really a powerful idea. Um, maybe we can start going back a little bit to the beginnings of the Continental and your your impressions as a nine-year-old boy when you came and your parents started this. We have a question here in the chat about was there a language barrier to opening this restaurant? How can immigrants be encouraged and feel safe opening public facing businesses overall um, in these times right now? So maybe you can start a little bit by remembering how it was then and then include some broader context.
0: Sure. Uh, Great question. And thank you for that, Sabina. Uh, If I can say, (laughs) Sabina, um uh the language barrier is is a very profound one it's uh it's almost like this curtain in front of you that you walk around all the time um which is interesting to even say that because most of us don't go around with a curtain in front of us Uh, but that's what happens as an immigrant uh We uh, my father when he started uh, working at the Continental the the restaurant itself was started in 1968 So the tail end of the hippie era and my father purchased the uh, Half share of the partner who was leaving. Uh, So we came in uh, in in 1974 Um, My father couldn't really speak English or write English Uh, and my mother who would come later by the way uh, the real hero of this story is my mother uh if you want to talk about uh, a transformation of a person going from zero to a hundred we really need to talk about my mother but let me go back to talking about my father for just a moment and then ourselves so my father who had never had any experience in the restaurant business at all i mentioned we grew up uh, in a farming community my father was a coal miner i had bit in the i had been in the pit so i know what it was like to go and we're not talking about huge professional minds we're talking about digging a hole not very big uh and you have to crawl in it to dig uh the coal to bring it out and it's very uh, difficult and a dangerous work uh, my mother's brother died in an accident when he was 33 in a coal mine so this was not something you just did flippantly um so there was a lot of inherent dangers there so he had no experience in the restaurant business but he was offered this choice to Uh, open up the to get into the restaurant to buy the share of this one retiring partner he hemmed and hawed for about a year and finally my mother said George Just buy it and go to work and shut up. (laughs) It's essentially what she told him and He did that and uh, he had to learn to speak English very quickly Now there was a partner there who was the the face of the restaurant So my father would do the cooking in the back. My father, by the way, is an extraordinary cook. I thought my mother was an extraordinary cook. My my dad, I mean, the man is, uh, he's brilliant. That's all I can say. Um, He had to learn how to speak quickly. Uh, The other partner decided to sell out uh, and eventually my father bought uh, the other partner or the partner of another partner, if you will, kind of a long story there and he asked my brother to come in, and eventually it was in 1980-81, I had moved down to Los Angeles at that time, my mother started working there. And my mother did not learn not even one word of English. I mean, she had, when she came to the United States, she was at home, she was a a working, not a working mother, but she was a working mother at home, raising the three kids, uh, cooking, cleaning and all that. But she decided in 1981 that she wanted to broaden her horizons. And she came into the restaurant and she wanted to be a server. Uh, So I don't know. I wasn't there to witness what what it was like in the beginning. But certainly the communication gap must have been very interesting for her as well as for the customers. But what was extraordinary was in short order, I think it took her a couple of years or so, she began to learn to read and write uh and ended up managing the restaurant i mean my mother if you look at the book i i try to make this case is that here was a very simple girl i think she managed to go through the fourth grade in elementary school or even third grade before world war ii started and she was a young girl her father was killed uh and and all of a sudden to go into the restaurant and to see these rock and roll musicians come in there and call her mom uh it was just extraordinary uh so eventually uh we were forced to learn the language because if you're working and and there's a customer in front of you and that customer is hungry you are forced to learn very quickly and that's what happened with uh, the language barrier but it was always there uh i can assure you
1: yeah i can imagine that and uh you know kudos to making that transition for your parents in particular um we have a couple of questions here that um, are in part personal, in part related to, to food. So um, Alex Holman asks uh, about the identity of the food that was served by your family in the (laughs) restaurant. How was it described by your parents? Did they see Uh, it as a straightforwardly Greek cuisine? Uh, What were the changes that they had to make to adapt to US conditions, styles, tastes? Um, Do you remember anything about that? that? Was that discussed at the dinner table, how to sell this to the Americans?
0: Oh, I can tell you so many stories about that. It was amazing that in the Jennifer Aitley's book, The Fortune Cookie Chronicle, she talks about trying to find learn more about uh, Chow's chicken, which is I, I'm, I, maybe I'm mispronouncing it, which is a big dish uh, in Chinese restaurants. And she found out that, you know, there was an actual general named Chow. Uh, but where the recipe came from, nobody knows. It was probably made up in the United States. Uh, we knew from the beginning that um, the food that we served, with the exception of the lentil soup and the Avrolemono soup, there was nothing really Greek about it. Uh, pita bread is not Greek. Uh, souvlaki is not Greek. I never had that in Greece. Uh, these were all really Americanized food. Uh, the, Greek fries, the Greek fries were these rusted potatoes and we would put oregano on it. That's not the fries I ate in Greece. So... Um, it, it was always kind of a challenge for us to uh, try to make the restaurant to to give it a more uh, an authentic flavor. And every time we try to do that, we failed. Uh, and I give you sort of a couple of examples. Uh, my father wanted to uh, not only serve a, a kind of a, a hamburger, if you will, made with beef. He wanted to serve a hamburger made with lamb beef. Well, Americans are not used to lamb because lamb has a very strong smell. If you've ever eaten lamb, it's a very distinct smell. Uh, and that went over really, really badly. Uh, and we just stopped right away. That experiment just failed. Um, the other one was he, my father tried to introduce real feta cheese into the cuisine. If you go into any Greek restaurant or any restaurant in the United States and you serve feta, I can almost assure you that feta comes from Vermont. Uh, and it's made out of cow's milk so my father wanted to actually have real feta imported from greece made from sheep and goat milk also a very strong flavor and that fell completely flat i mean people just we you know they ordered us a, a side of feta cheese with her meal and out went the the real feta and he promptly came back and said this there's something wrong with this cheese it's moldy or something this is bad cheese take it back i, I don't want to have it It wasn't. This was very expensive, but real feta cheese. Uh, The ultimate story about trying to give more authentic um, food in the continental is my father, after years and years of serving these Greek fries, which were not Greek, uh, he decided to actually serve potatoes like the kind that we ate in the village. Um, So we stopped the Greek fries one day. I happened to be there. So I saw this with my own eyes. And we started serving these potatoes. Well, the first customer uh, that received it looked at it apparently, and he took the plate. He came back to the restaurant, w- confronted my father and said, George, what is this? And my father explained to him, this is, these are real Greek potatoes. He said, no, they're not. And if you don't give them the real potatoes back, I'm going to kill you. So I'm standing there now, just a few feet away from my father, wondering, is this man for real? Should I be calling the police right now? Is my father in danger? Uh, well, I can tell you that day, that very day, we had to get rid of the real Greek potatoes, as we knew back in the village, and replace them with the fake real Greek potatoes, the russet potatoes with the, um, uh, with the oregano to make them Greek. So um, it was always a struggle to to negotiate what is really Greek food, what is Americanized Greek food um, and so forth. But it was a losing battle uh, with the customers, at least the customers that we dealt with. Maybe it's different in other restaurants, but from our perspective, it was uh, uh, a losing battle.
1: Well, I don't think you're alone with Greek food and that. This is a very general sentiment, I think, about many ethnic cuisines that adaptation goes one way um, towards the the buyer here. Um, Another question we have from Mark Rossman, who says, hi Tassel. um, And is asking uh, if you yourself did ever consider going into the restaurant business and work there full time. Um, And if not, how did that transition or how did that decision um transpire and how it how was it met by your family
0: wow uh yeah that's a that's a uh, wow i don't know exactly i'll try to answer that um there were there were many times uh when the thought of uh taking over the operation for my father and my mother who were you know getting old but the time they retired my father was in his uh 80s and my mother was approaching mid to late 70s so you know they had spent a lot of time there um and and i considered it for a long time many many years i thought it would be nice to sort of carry that tradition and then to sort of modify the restaurant uh and maybe update it and change it and so forth to a more modern cuisine and all that um ultimately you know I don't know how to to, to really express this. I, I know the restaurant business from the inside, so I know what it takes. And I know the effort, I know the hard work involved. And I can tell you, for example, that both my parents and to some degree my father and uh, my brother um, worked uh, 12, 10 hours a day, uh, 7 days a week. The only days off were uh, Thanksgiving, Christmas and New Year's Day and uh the work was punishing um my mother would get up at two thirty in the morning i know because whenever she went to greece i filled in for her i became helen for two weeks so i would get up at two thirty in the morning drive down from Edmonds to uh, the u district to open the restaurant uh to prep it to mop the floor if there's any human defecation i'm sorry to say that in the front of the restaurant um I had to clean it up, pour hot water, and so forth, and so on, and do all this. And she did that every single day throughout the year, with the, only those three days as an exception. My father would arrive at the, and she would go home at uh, three three thirty in the afternoon. My father would arrive by six o'clock in the morning. I know that because I personally drove him to the restaurant at that time, and then he would return home in the evening around nine o'clock. And that was the that was the way it was so the amount of work uh, that i knew was required to make that place sustainable was enormous and you have to if there's a problem if someone comes calls in sick or if the refrigerator doesn't work or if the deep fryer that you cook the fries on a busy sunday morning doesn't work you have to fix it you have to deal with the problem and you know i i kept thinking about it i do i have the wherewithal to do that It, it takes a certain kind of Physical and mental prowess to be able to to really do that and in the end, you know Maybe it was I don't know a lack of courage perhaps that I just felt like I I really didn't have the stomach for it Um, It just it just was too much for me Um, I didn't like to be around meat too much. Uh, I get sick whenever I'm around meat So I realized that's not a very good thing. I would have to turn it into a vegetarian place Um, which is not necessarily Greek, although Greeks have vegetarian dishes. So in the end I decided to, to not do it. Um, and actually one of the decisions that made that possible, uh, is, I don't know if professor Lance Bennett is here. Uh, if he is, if he's listening to this, he actually came into the restaurant when I was in graduate school and he talked to my parents about. Uh, encouraging me to to really focus on my uh, graduate school, um, which was uh, an extraordinary thing, and I'll, I'll never forget that. And I think uh, sort of with that in mind, I realized that my future was not gonna be in the restaurant business, but uh, hopefully I would make a small contribution uh, in academia. Um, as to regards to my family, how did they see that? I don't think that they ever really saw me as a restaurant person, as a restaurateur. Uh, I think my brother was the one that wanted me to take it over, but my parents no, they never really saw me. They, um, I'm a sort of a shy person, to be honest with you. I'm I'm an introvert, so the idea of dealing with the public every day just exhausts me. So I I don't know if I would do that. So in the end, um, my father sold the place to a very nice Chinese American family who own it to to this day. It's a Hawaiian barbecue place. Uh, and I've never been in there since.
1: They could probably all tell stories about adapting Hawaiian food. Indeed. Um, that's, that's, that's a very um, honest and frank um, assessment of where you were growing up, um, how hard it must have been to, to work in this place um, for your parents and for you seeing it. And then... Um, having advisors, Lance Bennett actually is here, and I see a question by him, Um, having advisors who pull you in another direction and having parents who don't oppose this. Um, So um, seems like it all worked out. Um, Lance Bennett though is asking, besides the fact that he's saying here, he came to breakfast quite regularly at the Continental and loved the food. Um, But he also, is worried about what is happening to small family restaurants of all sorts, um, as they are threatened, um, not just in Seattle, not just on University Ave, but um, in all of the US by by chains that are coming up, by gentrification chains that, um, you know, appear to be ethnic selling, ethnic uh, Mm -hmm. allegiance, the Olive Garden, the Chipotle, um, but, does that, uh, is Lance Bennett's questions, does that affect our perceptions of immigrants one way or the other? And what does that do to the capacity of Americans to appreciate traditional cultures?
0: Um, yeah, uh, I think uh, to go back to the first part, there's no question in my mind that uh, a place like the Continental, if it was to open today, would open up in a very different uh milieu where it would be very difficult to sustain it so these so-called ma and pa operations which uh, for many um ethnics is how they start um you see that disappearing uh you know if you look at the new york if you read the new york times it seems like just about every week there's an article about some uh, institutional place whether it's a restaurant or a record store or some place uh uh, photography store, et cetera, that was been there for a long time and all of a sudden it's closed because of, as Professor Bennett says, um, that, that gentrification, the rents go up, uh, you can't, you know, d- you can't compete with the Starbucks of the world and so forth. So that does change and it makes it much more difficult. And that's why, again, to go back to the institutional factor that these places are not in existence anymore, that will make it much more difficult for immigrants to uh, be able to adapt to the mainstream culture. As regards the ethnic food, you know that, that's a very kind of a tricky question because there is a perception of immigrants uh, in this culture, and for many non-immigrants in this society, they they get a chance to understand a culture primarily through food. That's how many Americans were and are introduced to a different culture by its food, um, and when that food begins to be given to us in a much more different atmosphere you might say than what happened at the continental your perception uh, of that food is changed uh and uh i think that's in a certain sense perhaps there's something benign about that but at the same time there's also a quality that is lost and when i say quality one of the main elements of the continental was and i don't think it was done deliberately but it was really done by accident was my father and really my family after at least i began to see it you know it took a while but i eventually saw that what they had done was to replicate a cafe neon a greek cafe in the village that was an institution the village cafe and i did this for my you know dissertation was a place where you not only got food and coffee you got the gossip people played games you got information you got your mail there was the first technologies were introduced in the village cafe like the television movies and all that stuff so it was a central place my father knew cafes intimately he was a denizen of this place and if you look at greek culture the cafe neon and the cafe was a central place to the immigrant experience when they came to the u.s they People started cafes and that was a way for people to feel comfortable in this society. And that's what my parents did. They replicated that unknowingly as a way to feel comfortable in this new culture. So when people came into the restaurant, they were always amazed, like you could could sit down and have a cup of coffee and sit there for six to eight hours because that's what happened in the Greek cafe in the village. You could have a coffee there and sit there for ten hours. It doesn't really matter. And that flavor, that unique flavor, I think is lost when we have these more efficient, more transactional places that are not necessarily about ethnicity quotation marks, but are really more about, you know, uh, earnings per square foot, uh, corporate um, expansion and all that. And I think there is a difference there. I'm not opposed to corporations, don't get me wrong. But the flavor begins to change, and I think that's the quality that I see that I that I fear will happen as fewer of these ethnic places are opened by real, you know, ethnic ethnic who only have that particular business. I think that Americans will have a different conception and relationship to that ethnic food, um, and that's what I think I, I see as a downside to what's happening
1: uh, in Seattle and elsewhere. <laughs> Mm, Thank you, and I think indirectly you you now uh, have answered a couple of questions that were appearing in the chat about what this quality was of community creation going on in the continental, whether that was by design, whether it it emerged organically. Um, The way you describe it, it was taken out of experience of your parents back home and Translated and worked on the University of right.
0: Yes, and and I didn't mention very excellent. I didn't mention also the the, the hospitality element of the Continental was also something that was ingrained. Uh, if you know anything about Greek culture, the word is philoxenia. Uh, Philo means friend, xenia means stranger. So philoxenos, uh, you are a friend to uh, to strangers. And that's something uh, I can attest to, and there was a specific, i give you an example of that, not just from the restaurant, but um, as you know, I take students to Greece every summer uh, and also in the spring break, and I had a summer program where we spent a few days in my village. And it was the afternoon, and I, uh, the custom in Greece is to take a nap. So I went to my grandmother's house and was taking a nap, and then I heard my name Tasso from the street below and I knew it was one of my students, so I got up and I rushed down and I, my image in my head was, Oh, something had happened, one of my students got into an accident, there was a leg broken or who knows what happened. And there were two of my students there and one of them came up to me and he was absolutely exasperated, he said, Tasso you, you, you're you not going to believe what happened to us we were walking up the street here in the village and this man came out and and grabbed us and put us down in, into his living room and fed us for two hours kept giving us food and kept talking to us I don't know what he was saying but he just kept giving food and giving food so what should we do I said just go back take a little piece of cho- you know buy a chocolate and go back and say thank you and everything will be okay that sort of hospitality is what we grew up with and that's what my father understood and my mother and my brother myself and my sister so whenever someone came into the restaurant usually we knew their names they didn't even have to open their mouths and we could go and do the order for them uh if you know bill gates's mother used to come in mary gates was a little short woman very fastidious always ordered the same food every single time um she was on the the board of regents and I remember the story and uh, she went up to my father one day, she said, George, my son one day will become a very famous electrical engineer. Talking about Bill Gates. Uh, that was sort of the interaction we had with our customers. And we knew them, they knew us, we knew their names. My father would give candy to the kids. Those kids would grow up, have kids of their own. And my father would continue giving them candy. Uh, one other thing that I'm always was very proud of my family whenever a person who was in transition came to the restaurant it didn't matter who that person was they always always got a free cookie and a free cup of coffee always there was never an exception never an exception so that sort of hospitality that's that was ingrained in us we brought that greek culture to to the uh, to the to the continental that's who we, we were we that's who we were and that's who we always will be, and I'm very proud of the, the the many friendships we've had. And I know that when the restaurant was sold, and uh, when I was on the campus, I don't think a week went by when someone didn't come up to me and say, "Tasso, why did you close the Continental? Why did you do that?" And I had no answer. I had absolutely no no response to that, and I still don't have an answer.
1: Well. Yes or no, the way you described what the workload was, the way you described your own trajectory, those are all parts of the the loss that many of us experienced, I think. And, and someone in the chat now is trying to instill a glimmer of hope by asking, is anyone of the Lagos family considering going back into restaurant business?
0: <laughs> uh... Okay, let me tell you something. Uh, since the restaurant was closed, I cannot tell you how many dreams I've had, I have had of the restaurant being open. In fact, three days ago, I had a dream where the Continental was open, my brother decided to open, and all the customers came back. It was thriving and I was there trying to help and do the you know best what I could. Uh, th- this is a dream. Uh, no, sadly, it's not gonna happen. My brother is not going to do it. I I can't do it. Uh, My sister, she has a very successful career uh, as an academic in California. So, uh, you know, the book is, I don't know, the closest thing to the continental. All the recipes my father ever had are in the back of the book. I even have my recipe for Tasso's breakfast. It's all there. So you know, maybe you can start your own Continental in your house. Maybe there will be thousands of Continentals that will be spawned from this book. If so, fantastic. But that particular place, the Continental as a third place, as a place of poetry, that's over. It's never going to happen. And so I think we all have to recognize that I have to recognize that. And, uh, we have to, um, respect other places that or we have to honor other places that are like the continental uh, like the bulldog news is still around you can you can honor the continental by going to those places Mm
1: -hmm, mm -hmm. very good point so we only have a few minutes left um let me maybe um go on from this iconic continental story towards your next project and Questions about what will that look like? Do you expect, in your history of uh, Greek restaurants since 1880, to find similar stories across the United States? Uh, what 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 are your questions there?
0: Well, yeah, this is this is the huge project that's staring at me in the face every single day, and there's really two ways that I can go in this regard, and I'm still I haven't decided which way, and perhaps someone can offer his or her opinion uh it could be kind of an extension of the continental book where i look at restaurants but from a larger perspective and look at trends and see how the restaurant the how the flow of restaurants the development how it went westward and so forth and so on what was its relationship to the greek communities where greek restaurants opened? excuse me um That's the one uh, road that I can take. The other one is a much longer project, perhaps a 10, 20 year project where I try to find every single restaurant that there's any kind of archival material and put it into a compendium of all the Greek restaurants that have ever existed in the United States, in the major cities um, since 1880, into this big volume uh, to find out who owned it, how many people worked there, what, what were the names of the people, to show us exactly what uh, ethnicities were there involved in the in the prep in the kitchen and so forth uh, to look at trends so these are the two ways and I don't know which way Um, I maybe both maybe I'll do this initial one and start doing this other one uh, to leave it as a archival record of Greek restaurants in the United States for future uh, academicians and researchers to have that information and maybe also create a website where that information will be there available to you. So you can click, for example, Seattle, and just click on map of the streets of downtown Seattle or the environs of downtown Seattle. Click on a place and you can see the name of that restaurant, when it opened, when it closed, who was involved, etc. cetera, because uh, I think that will be of immense value. So um, this, is, this is what I'm faced right now, um, and I will hopefully maybe get some students to help me because uh, it's a monster of a project, and uh, wish me
1: luck. <laughs> Which we definitely do, and yes, involving students in that kind of research uh, could be could be an added value for for everybody here. Um, I would like to close by thanking you very much for sharing very personal thoughts, but also very political and and uh, food inspired thoughts with us. Um, you will get the chat from me, the Q&A from me, we will save that and it will show you how many people just said, hi Tasso, we really <laughs> miss the Continental, um, we're looking forward to reading the book. So a lot of your friends uh, would, would like to know more about the story. All right. Thank you so much for being with us. And uh, we'll look forward to the next chapter with the big comprehensive account for ethnic cultures in food cultures in the U.S. Thank you and everybody have a good day.